Welcome to Family Life Today, presented in cooperation with this station by Power to Change. We hope today's program will give you something to reflect on and to encourage you in your relationships. Our hosts are Dave and Ann Wilson. One of the things we've heard over the years, tell me if I'm correct, after doing a marriage series, especially at church, is sometimes singles would say, you guys are so honest about your struggles. Is there anything good in marriage? It sounds like it's all bad. <laughs> they, say, they say this is depressing. Yeah, all I the think... married couples are going, man, thank you for being so honest. Yeah. And then the singles are like, I don't think I want to get married if that's really how bad it is. Because they are discouraged and they are wondering what is love. But it what is, is good, marriage? right? It's so good. It is good. But we need to talk about. But it's different than what we anticipate because we've been trained in our culture of what the world says love is. And I don't think we really know what biblical love looks like in a marriage or in relationships. Well, we're going to know today. We've got Paul Miller back in the studio. You wrote a book called A Loving Life. You know what biblical love looks like. We've already talked to you for a couple of days. But, Paul, welcome back. You're going to be the one who's going to answer all our questions today. <laughs> well, after that introduction, I probably need to go to prayer for an hour uh, just for humility in my life, which can be very elusive. But I love to think of love as an art, you, you know, because it, it, it's not, I mean, there are science sides to it, you right, know, I mean, right. there are structures and principles, but I need every day to learn how to re-love my wife. And let me talk about the upside. You know, we've talked about the J-curve going down into death and up into resurrection. Uh, marriage is one of the places where I experienced most of my, my resurrection, you know, looking at, you know, we, we were engaged at 17 and 18 and married at 18 and 19, so we kind of grew up together. There you, <laughs> you know? go. Mm-hmm. And six kids. How many grandkids? Fifteen? Uh, five kids. Yeah, 15 grandkids, one in heaven. Mm. Actually, that's why I wrote this book. When John and Pam lost their son, Ben, our grandson, when Pam was eight months pregnant, oh. you know, holding this little two-and-a-half-pound baby and, mm. you know, a little tiny casket and... Mm. Um, so I, I wrote this book as a gift to them and, and dedicated it to Ben, whom we will meet in heaven. Mm-hmm. And that severe dying of Ben, just there, there was so much that, the resurrection that came out of that. If you understand that dying and rising is the normal Christian life, it prepares you for the death, but resurrection is the last word. Mm-hmm. And one of them, just really quickly, on one of the scenes in the book of Ruth is you get a sense when Ruth goes out to the field, you get a sense of how wicked alone she feels. Mm. And why is that so important is because one of the things that happens when you do covenant love, when you commit in love, is you will often feel very alone in love. That surprised me. Did it surprise you that you would feel alone when you're sleeping beside this person that you're married to, and yet you can feel alone? It helped to identify that as a feeling, you know what I mean? So it wasn't strange. So just to actually know that that's one of the things that happens on the dying side of love is that I'm going to be alone. Mm. And it's a little disconcerting because you're expecting Right, that's why you get married. Yeah. I want to be together. And and then to experience aloneness uh, within the marriage 
And at different times in our marriage, Jill has felt that in relationship to me, and then I have felt that in relationship to her. But to know that, kind of normalize it. Oh, okay, here I am in a death. So here's uh, Ruth in this death. You know, going out, Naomi is bitter, lamenting, and we can talk about that in a minute. But she comes in to the through the. She's walking through the city of gates. Naomi and Ruth. You know, they, you know, they're kind of whispering, who is that? It looks like Naomi, you know, they're, and, and Naomi overhears them. I'm expanding a little bit, but it's pretty much there. And she hears them whispering her name, kind of Naomi, is that Naomi, you know? And she says, she kind of, you know, she says, don't call me Naomi. You know, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. And she doesn't introduce Ruth, you know. So here is Ruth surrounded by people utterly alone. She knows nobody and and Naomi hasn't done a single thing to help her. Now, Naomi is in she's depressed. I mean, she she really is. It's not clinical depression. Her life has been depressing Hmm. and Ruth has bound herself to this. And the next day, Ruth gets up and says, I'm going to go out in the field. And Naomi doesn't even say, oh, go to Boaz or she didn't do nothing. You know what I mean? She didn't even go out and I'm going to help you for a couple hours. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you could I mean, the victim story that we could come out of this for Ruth. But because she's done Hesed love, she refuses to be a victim or live in a victim narrative. And that's so unusual because we all live in that victim mentality. Yes. yes. It doesn't mean that she's not being badly treated. I, I'm not saying any, any of that, but living as a victim, nourishing that victim narrative just kills the love of God in your heart. Mm-hmm. Because what you're doing, it, it's just a form of self-pity. If you're misdirecting compassion inward that's what self-pity is it's misdirected compassion Mm -hmm. and when you're misdirecting compassion you don't leave any room for god's love for you because you're you're filling up the space of your heart with your own pity when you feel that aloneness in marriage because that's a shocking thought to people you know yeah I'm not going to feel alone anymore. That's one of the reasons we are getting married. That's going to solve my aloneness. Right. Even in the Garden of Eden, you know, you are no longer alone. I have brought a partner to you. So that's a revolutionary thought. It's like, that's okay. That's normal. How do I embrace that? Because in some way, you sort of have to embrace it. How? First of all, it helps to know that when she does that, covenant when she does hesed love verbally where you go i will go where you stay i will stay where you and and then your god will be my god your people will be my people and then she cements it in yeah she says the the third stanza of her commitment of her hesed love is where you die i will also die Mm -hmm. she's verbally cutting all her ties to moab Sorry, it's just so moving her, just the depth of her commitment. So she's going to embrace this entire culture. She's really died to herself. You're right, Anne. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, everything that she's known, everything that she has been, everything that she had hoped for, she has let it die. And she's died to all of her dreams to follow 
Naomi. Naomi, who she loves, who she loves, who just happens to be in kind of a bad spot at this point. <laughs> you know, she doesn't criticize Naomi. The Bible doesn't criticize Naomi. Hmm. No one in the book of Ruth criticized, but the church who was 200, 300 years has criticized Naomi and has kind of looked at her as bitter Naomi. Hmm. And it's because we don't have any categories for laments in the church. I I think the church is rediscovering that now, but we actually lost that whole Hebrew tradition of laments Mm. in the church, like where you could actually pray to God, God, where are you? God, why have you turned your back on me? So we've lost the beauty, that Hebrew sense of the beauty of being able to lament. And let me circle back to my own marriage on that. It was me some 30 years ago when I first began to study the person of Jesus that I began to slow down and listen to my wife's laments and to begin to value them and not critique them. My upbringing is blue blood Presbyterian and we're good at critiquing. I mean, we just, it's in the blood, you know what I mean? So what better thing could my wife need than my wisdom, my theological wisdom? So that's what you did when she was lamenting before? Yeah. I mean, I would be patiently listening, but at the right time I would need to correct the lament. What would you say? Like what kind of things? Oh, I said, um, I kind of want to blank it out, okay? But, like, you know, when Kim was born in 81, it was just this long death for Jill. Mm-hmm. And she lost friends because... Because Kim was special needs? Yeah, because when someone is grieving like Naomi, they have their capacity to move out in love is dimmed. And I think the evangelical church, which was reflected in our church, was good at... Uh, missions kind of things and project kind of things, but they weren't as good at that point. This is 30, 40 years ago at caring for someone who had a problem that wouldn't go away, you you know. And so I'm sitting here listening to you, Paul. If we don't express it outwardly, does it go inwardly? Oh, yeah. Laments leak. Yeah, they leak as anger and... Laments are cathartic, but that's not why you pray them. You pray that because God isn't doing what you asked him. God has disappointed you. Life has disappointed you. And it's the very expression. Your friends have betrayed you or a friend has. But, you know, a lament is gives verbal expression to the brokenness of the world that you feel in your life. Mm. And to be able to share that openly is, I, I call lament praying, going nuclear in prayer. And it's so powerful. Jesus is, is lamenting on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the garden. In the garden. God, take this cup from me. So, Jill is lamenting. Did you lament as well when Kim was born? Oh, I I forgot the exact illustration. Yes, I did lament. But year eight into Jill's really long, you know, in her just really being depressed. Is eight years? I think in some ways it was probably a 10-year kind of slow downward, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, one of Jill's lowest points, I said, Jill, why don't you just give this is a bad example. Okay, this is, you wanted a bad example. Okay, well, why don't you just give Kim to God? And she said, Paul, I do every day. 
it's kind of shut me up. (laughs) Well, we tend to put a time frame on our lamenting, like, hey, it's been a while. It's time to get over it. That's right. Yeah, it's sort of the American kind of move on. And again, you can get stuck in sadness. I don't want to say that there aren't. There's a lot of things to balance here. Mm -hmm. But, But still, in general, I did not understand the beauty of Jill's lament. By the time I began to study the book of Ruth all the time, I, I really appreciated Naomi's laments. I just enjoy her honesty hmm. because the lament is actually filled with faith because you're calling God to account for his promises. And you're saying, God, this isn't matching. You know, it's no different than my wife saying to me, Paul, you said you would take the trash out and the third week in a row, <laughs> it's not out. And I had to take it out. That's a lament, you know. And, so when uh, we do that to God, are we saying, God, you promised that you would dot, yeah, dot, dot, yeah, and you're not? Yeah. Or these are my hopes and dreams, and this is what you've given me. Why, God? You know, why are you doing this? And so you're not demanding that God fix it. You're simply honest with him. The the principal impact of the love of God in your life is freedom. And what a lament is, it's freedom to be yourself with God. Mm. Now, I do want to qualify it. There are some differences between, uh, what's the difference between lament and complaining? Mm. Laments go vertical. They go to God. Complaining goes horizontal to other people. Another thing that a lament does, it will surrender to the story that God's put you in. It doesn't demand that God take you out of that story, but it's honest about what it feels like to be in that story, but it doesn't demand God take you out of that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Explain that considering the loss of your daughter who died of cancer. Like you had to lament. Oh, yeah. I wrote two new chapters in the book of Praying Life on lamenting, and that that was all fueled by, I don't mention losing our daughter Ashley then, but that was all fueled by that. What our tendency to do within suffering is to shut down our souls. Mm -hmm. The pain is so great at one level that, that you determine not to feel. And that's one of the worst things you can do. Mm-hmm. When, when I do our prayer seminars, I have people take 10 minutes just to write out a, a lament. I hardly ever have to ask people to say, well, like, what do you mean by this? Mm-hmm. I say, you know, just take something in your personal life or your family or, your, you know, or something in the culture and tell God how it breaks your heart, mm-hmm. you know, and be yourself with God. Now, how did you love Jill? When she was lamenting for that long. I know for me it's hard when Anne is struggling. If I'm down for a I day. I mean, her, her number one of her gifts is positivity. She's the most positive person ever. And when she's not, I'm like, I, I'm struggling with you not being positive for five hours. You're talking <laughs> more than five years. And your wife's, you know, struggling with lament. How'd you love her? Well, there were... You know, many bright spots within that, you you know what I mean? And it really didn't get harder until the, you know, kind of year 10 and 11. Those were some of the hardest years for her. And Mm -hmm. I just prayed. I said, God, you've you've got to, uh, you know, would you show me how to love? I did not know how to love her. 
And the, the mission I worked for gave me a sabbatical, and I took that sabbatical, and I just immersed myself in the Gospels to, to say, how does Jesus love people? And one of the things that popped out of us just was Jesus looks at people. There were all these patterns of Jesus that I wasn't doing, and one of them was that I don't have to get her out of this, that I can enter into her lament. Oh, boy. And that was the most important thing for me to do, was to pray that I could enter into her lament. Now, what that, what that look like? God tortured me for the next 10 years of my life. And he put me in situations where I was rejected in some ways that she had been rejected and felt rejected. So I understood her world from the inside. Gave it, you compassion. Yeah, it gave me compassion. I stopped preaching. <laughs> mm. You know, my sermons were short, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting answer to say I entered into my wife's lament because I had to lament. So mm. you you resonated because you were going through similar similar things and yeah. feelings. Yeah, and it, it took me years to even see some of the patterns of what God was doing. So mm-hmm. he answered my prayer for her. And the resurrections that have come out of this are unbelievable. I'm a ah. different person. Like what? She's a different person. I know how to love. Hmm. I know how to pray. I know how to suffer. <laughs> I mean, I just, there's things I just know. There are things I inhabit. And I only understood that by entering into her lament. Ah. You say the resurrections have been amazing, and I say, what are they? And you say, I've learned how to suffer. I've learned how to pray. So often in our, we think the resurrection has to be, you know, I'm happy now. I feel the greatest. God's met me, and he's answered every prayer. No, I've learned how to suffer. I've learned how to pray. That's those are that's the, the richness. And, you know, just like Solomon's prayer, God has also given us all our kids are believers and going to church and love their spouses and i mean what a gift that is it's because they've watched their dad yeah and their mom yeah yeah and their mom live for jesus and die to themselves every day yeah so back to our daughter kim one of the first things she did and we knew this immediately you know within so she's born in 81 but even within a a year year two years we already saw the patterns we began to see the story that god was weaving and he just kept weaving it and it, it was that he was humbling two self-sufficient people. Mm-hmm. And the only way he could do it was to gift us with a, a daughter with pretty significant disabilities. And, you know, this is not, I mean, it's a hardship now, but we don't even think about it. That's just in our routines. But, you know, Kim and I watch the Three Stooges every Saturday night. <laughs> I bet you guys don't have as much fun as I do watching Kim laugh at the Three Stooges. <laughs> yeah. you know, she I mean, brought it's, such joy to your life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every morning we make breakfast together. It's kind of our time in the morning. Then we watch Cartoon Network. And it, we just howl through these cartoons. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I watch Popeye almost every morning. <laughs> with your 41-year-old Yeah, with my daughter. 41-year-old laughing through it. So the resurrections, you 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 have to be, have an eye for dying, but also you have to have an do- eye for resurrection. Mm-hmm. And what they, it looks like, yeah. And resurrections are beyond all that you can ask or imagine. That you know, I'm quoting Ephesians three twenty. Yeah. yeah, but but you have to be get get an eye for them. Mm-hmm. And we we've lost our eye for resurrection. Actually, there's history behind us. The Latin Church, which that's what we're part of, has more focused on dying than resurrection. And uh, within 
the two strands of Christianity, Orthodoxy and Pentecostalism, have a much heavier emphasis on resurrection. The rest of us tend to get stuck in dying. And resurrection is the last word. Paul, as we finish up today, where do we begin? You know, as as you're thinking about the listeners. Well, so I was thinking somebody's in lament right now. Yeah. In that yeah. season. What would you give them to say... Start here. Or they're Think just here. lonely. Yeah, and they're here. just You know, I'd get a journal probably and just write, just pour out your heart to God. Tell him what you want. Don't shut down your soul. Uh, stay within his frame. So what's his frame? It's it's the church body of Christ, the authority of the church, the wisdom of the word, you know, all the so all the frame. I think of life, marriage is like a garden with a fence. So don't move the fence. Hmm. And commit yourself to stay in the garden. That's the Hesed love. But in the garden, water that garden with your tears. Mm. And those tears are, you know, the tears and this blood of Gethsemane are the foundation for the resurrection. And I'll add to, since we've been talking about Ruth and you've written about Ruth and studied her so much, the thing that I love about God is that as she died to herself and gave up everything to follow Naomi, God never stopped seeing her he always had his hand on her he always was watching her even when Naomi couldn't help her at all and she was just so she was so caught up in her own pain God's hand was on Naomi and out in the fields she's all alone yeah Boaz comes and meets her it's sorry it's the beginning of the resurrection you know he he gives seven quick commands it just protects her for the rest of her life. Hmm. You know, don't go another field. Stay with the young women. Sorry, it's just so, it's just the, re- the resurrection has begun. Yeah. And she's overcome by it. And for the first time, you see her emotions. You know, you think she's a robot up till then until she says, and you just see this relief come out of her. It's really strong in the Hebrew. And she says, oh, my goodness, you could translate it. Why have you taken notice of me? She knows her status, that she's low and hidden and alone and forgotten. And the resurrection begins. And That's what I mean. God never had his hand off of her. And the listener right now needs to know God sees you. Yeah. Yeah. And Amen. his hand is with you. As yeah. hard as it is, yeah. he sees you right now, right where you are. And he is with you. We want to thank Dave and Ann Wilson and their team for another edition of Family Life Today. Although our programs are produced in America, the issues facing families like forgiveness, communication and taking care of our kids transcend national borders. These issues profoundly affect relationships everywhere. In Australia, family life is known as power to change and our mission is to effectively develop godly families, the kind of families that change the world one home at a time. A key part of our mission includes strengthening marriages and families all around the world. We want to do whatever we can to bring timeless truths to the challenges you face as you seek to strengthen your family and join us in changing the world. Interesting in mentoring a younger couple or being mentored yourself? Check out Power to Change's mentoring initiative designed to help you avoid those pitfalls we all can fall into. Email radio at powertochange.org.au or go to our website families.powertochange.org.au under the Helping Couples tab to get started today.
You're invited back tomorrow at the same time for another Family Life Today presented by Power to Change in conjunction with this radio station.